our talk this evening from 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. It says, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look toward the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. This is the word of the Lord. Strange Christmas text, is it not? We're talking about the end of the world and what is to come. Makes me think of the great sage philosopher poet of our time, Tom Petty, who says... The waiting is the hardest part. Every day, take one more yard. You take it in faith. You take it by the heart, from the heart, with the heart. The waiting is the hardest part. Tom Petty sings this line, and it makes me think about uh, my own life in those moments, those classic moments where you are waiting for something to happen. As I was thinking through uh, stories, one of the first ones that I remembered was 15-year-old Josh with a, a car out in the driveway. In Delaware, back in the day, when you actually turned 16, you had the keys to the kingdom, and you could basically hop in your little mobile and drive all around town wherever you wanted to without curfew and just, you just do your thing. And I was 15-year-old Josh just waiting, 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 counting down days until my ultimate freedom when I could break the chains of bondage held by my parents and cruise around. Um, I also at that time had a pager. I was not a drug dealer. I did not have a girlfriend. I had one friend who thought, man, I think that I need to stay in close contact with you, so I'm going to buy you a pager for your birthday. And I had this pager, and he was the only one that ever called. But it made, made you look classic in that moment when the right people are in the right room at the right time. You say, excuse me, I've got a page. Let me replay. Excuse me, I've got a page. That dates me as well. I also remember I had a CD player in this car, and I just, I had one I had a lot of CDs, but the one that I wanted to throw in there was, I've told you these stories before, um, it was Usher. Uh, different, different, different phase of the game back then, but I just, I just wanted to throw up the bass and put on my Usher CD and cruise around town. And I remember waiting for my birthday to take place so that I could do that. However, when my birthday came, I woke up and I was like, I got nowhere to go. My pager's not going off. Nobody's trying to get in contact with me. So I jumped in my car and I went and picked up my friend and we were like, well, uh, 
We don't know where the girls are, so it's, it's Thanksgiving. Um, I guess we'll go to the beach. <laughs> so we just rode to the beach. We had, side note, like the waiting is the hardest part. Yeah, but then at the end of it, it seemed pretty anticlimactic for me in that moment. There's been other moments in my life, though, where I've been waiting for things to happen. Uh, one of the other ones that just popped up into the, the fore of my, my thinking was um, a couple years ago, near like the, one of the culminating points of my uh, doctoral program is a thing called comprehensive exams. And students, I can sympathize with your finals periods because this is basically four tests taken over the course of two weeks that test you on everything that you've ever learned with regard to your, to your subject. Um, one was uh, write a 25-page paper in a 24-hour period. One was um, ancient and Eastern history and religion. One was Old Testament theology. And one was... Um, something, critical methods, something like that. But basically you have this two-week period where you're throwing up everything that you've ever heard and known and they give you these massive book lists. And I remember taking those tests and then afterwards, like I, I'm a warrior by nature, so I was just on pins and needles waiting for my professors to email me saying, you're okay. Didn't care what I got, I just wanted to hear them say, you're okay. And I remember checking that email over and over and over and over and over and over and over waiting, good grief, with, with academic stuff can be the hardest part. You take a test and you're right on the edge and you don't quite know and you're just waiting for some kind of confirmation that you'll be okay. The third story, um, I meant to talk to you about this and see if it was okay if I told this story. Um, <laughs> don't really have a good chance to answer now, so I'm just going to roll with it. Kate, her waiting right now is, what is he going to say? And how long do I have to keep this smile on my face? It has to do with, with the birth of our son. Um, not only was there a period of, of waiting for, for Kate and I to, to get the news that, that we were able to have kids and that we were going to have one, but then I just, I, I launched into worry mode from, from that moment on. I remember how she broke the news. We were sitting on the couch and she said, um, we're gonna have a, a baby. And I said, no, we're not. Straight face, like, no. She's like, uh, yeah. I was like, I'll believe it when I see it. Um, <laughs> and, and gentlemen in the room, do not take husbanding uh, advice from, from your dear pastor in the moment. But it, it was like, I'll believe it when we get a blood test, I think is exactly what I said, because this home pregnancy test, you're never, you're never quite sure. And she's like, I took a couple of them. I'm like, yeah, I don't think so. And I don't know if, what kind of reaction it was for me, but I just wasn't ready. I, and it flashed back to a friend of mine who, when he heard that he was having his first kid, he just went and sat in the shower, like literally sat in the shower for an hour and a half to two hours. And when he came out, he said, can I still play airsoft? That, that was his big thing. Um, but I also remember being, being in the room and it was like, it's go time. And that, the next, I don't remember how many hours it was, but they were traumatic for me, just waiting, waiting, waiting to meet this child that we didn't even know if it was a he or a she, which led to a lot of odd conversations when we're talking about baby James as it. Sometimes we felt really guilty about that, but just waiting to see um, who, who this person would be. The season of Advent is a season of waiting. It's, des it's designed to cultivate our awareness of God's actions past, present, and future. 
In Advent, we hear the prophecies of the Messiah's coming as addressed to us. We take those scriptures and now we, we read them not as announcements of Christ's birth, but we see them in a different light and we hear them as a people who wait for his return. We sang a song tonight about um, forever Christ being glorified and the stone being rolled away in this climactic moment of defeating death through resurrection. And now, as a people, in the midst of that, um, folks that have, have given ourselves to following Jesus, to being about what Jesus is about, to being a people of justice and love and mercy and forgiveness, we, we wait with eager anticipation for this world to be, as N.T. Wright would say, put to rights, to see justice take place. We are waiting for this second coming. In Advent, we heighten our anticipation for the ultimate fulfillment of all Old Testament promises when the wolf will lie down with the lamb, when death will be swallowed up and every tear will be wiped away. This uh, quotation is from a book that we use here often. It's called the Worship Source Book. But basically what they're, they're putting us into this mindset of Advent as awaiting. And for us on the other side of Christmas and for us as on the other side of, of Easter even, our waiting is a bit different. And when you think about it a little bit, um, underlying Tom Petty's sage words is this idea that there's tension built into this period of waiting. The scholars refer to this as inaugurated eschatology. Say it with me, inaugurated eschatology. Beautiful, because what's happening is Jesus, when he shows up, he's announcing the kingdom is here. Everything, Israel, that you've been waiting for since that moment back in the garden when Adam and Eve wrecked everything through the introduction of sin and death into the world, everything that you've been waiting for is here with me. It's now, it's present, the kingdom, which one scholar refers to as God's dream for the world come true is happening, it's here, and I'm bringing it to fulfillment. Yet, we also know that while Jesus inaugurates that beautiful experience of kingdom, we live in the midst of brokenness. We live in the midst of death, divorce, difficulty. We live in the midst of a people who looks over here and says, Jesus, you have redeemed all things to yourself, yet we are broken. And there's a tension as we wait for this second coming. There's this tension in trying to understand what is going on. There's this tension even in hoping for Christ to show himself in our very lives. This kind of underlies the text that we're looking at tonight in 2 Peter chapter three. There's a lot of things going on in this passage. Um, but a couple of things are, are made clear here. The author says, above all, you must understand that in the last days, this is the author sort of um, attempting to, to prophesy about what's to come. Some people will say that he's actually in that moment and putting those words back here in, in, into the book. Either way, though, we're understanding that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming that he promised? You guys think that, that Jesus is Lord. You think that his death and his resurrection actually did something. You think that he's coming back. Well, where is he? What are you waiting for? Underlying this claim, too, is, is an idea where 
the scoffers wanted ultimately to live however they wanted to live. And they wanted other people to join them in that. Looking at the, believe, the believing community saying, it's not happening, give up, let it go. Do whatever you want, life's too short, eat, drink, and be merry, who cares? Ever since our ancestors died, the author says, everything uh, goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. This is the words in the mouths of the scoffers. There's nothing here to demonstrate the fact that your God is actually reigning and ruling, and there's nothing here that demonstrates that he's going to show up. All we see are a bunch of crazy people following this extreme notion that there's life after death and that this God you serve is showing up. I think that even set within the first century, there's a lot of resonances with this sort of claim for us as a people. I don't know about you, but if you've ever sat across the table with somebody who is not quite on board with, with the Christian belief system and kind of throws these things out there, like, why do you think this? Why do you believe that? What are you waiting for? What are you doing? Why don't you just live this way? Continues, but they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. And here the author is tapping into this um, ancient idea that the earth was formed out of primordial chaos symbolized in water. And even in Genesis, we see that there's a separation from the waters from above and the waters from below. It's God taking the thing, the very thing that would strike fear into the heart of an ancient mind the tahome, the deep, this watery substance and saying, I'm in control. We've talked about this before. We see the spirit of God hovering over the waters as if to say, you've got nothing on me. You're under my thumb, so to speak. And he's saying um, that, that by God's word, the heavens came into being. Verse six, by these waters also the world of that time was deluged or flooded and destroyed. It's interesting in Genesis chapter six, it talks about the floodgates being opened up as if there's this big dome-like structure above and the floodgates open and the waters that have been separated and now are above flood the earth and destroy it. And this author is tapping into that and then he goes one step farther. By the same word, the power of God, the sovereignty of God who's in control over all things, who's hovering over the waters as if to say, you've got nothing on me. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. It's important to note here that the emphasis is not on the destruction of this place as if we're leaving and going somewhere else. The emphasis is on the judgment, the destruction of the ungodly. I was having a conversation. Um, I actually heard about this secondhand, um, this idea within, within Christianity where it doesn't matter, and I'm gonna get really green here, okay? Don't, don't throw me in the liberal camp, but get ready for it. Some environmentalism is coming at you. Um, it doesn't matter what kind of car you drive or if you recycle or what you do with the earth because it's all just going to burn anyway. And some Christians have this idea that since this fire is not just caught up for, for the ungodly, but it's actually going to be something that destroys this place and we go off to our heavenly home, that we don't need to care about this place anymore, which is a complete and utter misreading of the the narrative of the Bible which sees Adam and Eve in the garden as stewards of creation. And we too need to be stewards of creation. Okay, I'm off, I'm off the environmental soapbox. You still with me? We still okay? All right. Um, 
the waiting in context here in the verses that we've been looking at is set with, within response to the scoffers and their claims. Why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you waiting? Your God's not showing up. The author says, but do not forget. And that's the same word where uh, it, earlier in, in the text, these people had, had forgotten. He says, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The waiting in context is there's this pause. And in God's mind, in God's understanding of time, it, it's totally different. For us, it seems like eternity. And for him, it's a blink. As I'm sitting in front of my computer, refreshing, 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 did I fail, did I fail, did I fail? Like it seems like it's going on forever, but in, even in, the, in our understanding of our lives, it's, it's but a second, but a glimpse. Take that back even one step farther on, on an eternal scale, it's, it's nothing. It's like that. So this, this period of waiting, what the author is trying to say is there's this pause here and for us it seems like it's a really long time but for God it doesn't seem quite as long. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you. There's a, there's a purpose in this waiting also. It says he is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance in this text, there's an important in the fact that this waiting is allowing for people to come to a knowledge of, of Jesus. This waiting is, is a good thing. If God in the Bible operated in the sense of whenever we are deemed to be unworthy of his love, we are punished and written off, we would all be in big trouble. But there's this, this period of waiting where God is allowing through his grace and through his mercy us to figure out and wrestle and try to understand what it is that he's teaching us in the midst of this life. This waiting is a good thing, but this waiting will end. It continues, um, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. That's important. It's the things that are happening here, the things that we do will actually be exposed for what they are in that moment. For some of us, the waiting is a good thing because we come to know Christ and we come to follow God. For others of us, the waiting is not good because at some point, the waiting is over. At some point, there's this moment when Everything done in the world will be laid bare. So what the author of Second Peter is trying to get to, his big point is, in the midst of the waiting, live like this. Since everything will be destroyed, what kind of people ought you to be? What kind of people ought you to be if you want to remain here where righteousness is going to dwell? He says, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. So ultimately what this text is about is these people in the midst of waiting for God to move and in, in waiting for Christ to return. It's a call for us to live holy and godly lives and it's a bad cliche, make every moment count. Analyzing my own life for a second, I'm so caught up in the, did I fail, did I fail, did I fail? When am I gonna finish this stupid degree? When am I gonna get a raise? When am I gonna get this? When am I gonna get that? Like I get so caught up in these things that I don't know if my life is characterized by holy and godliness because I'm so concerned with the cares of 
of this world. So concerned with um, things that are ultimately good things, leading this church, leading this people, um, being a good Bible teacher. It's, it's very strange to think that um, my desires to, to pursue God at, at times might actually supplant my own relationship with God, if that makes sense. Um, but here, the, the call is to live a holy and godly life, putting others before yourself, understanding what Jesus is calling us to and, to, and, and living in response of that. He says, that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth and tapping into this um, prophetic announcements back in Isaiah where this is what we're waiting for. We're waiting for the wolf to lie down with the sheep the lion to lay down with the lamb. We're waiting for the day when we take our instruments of war and we meld them into farming tools. We're waiting for the day when Christ's redemption and reconciliation of all things is actually a, rec- a redemption and reconciliation of all things. He continues, so then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Sit here for a second, hear these words as they come out of my mouth, and self-assess so then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, if you call yourself Christian, if you're waiting for the, uh, the second coming of Jesus, if you're waiting for the culmination of all things, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Does that characterize who we are? Or are we too caught up in all of this stuff? when we look into the mirror and we see ourselves or when we lay our, our heads down on our pillows, are we able to say that we have made every effort to be found spotless and blameless? Or do we follow our own pursuits? This second week of Advent is about peace. And thinking through Second Peter chapter three, this idea that Christ has brought the kingdom here but we still live in the midst of suffering and difficulty is on full display even over the past couple of weeks. This idea of of peace and how we've received peace through the Prince of Peace and how we should be striving to live at peace with, with God in our relationship with him. Yet when we look outside of these walls and we look outside of our setting and situation, we don't see a world that's characterized by peace. And we're in the midst of this tension where Jesus has redeemed all things, but we're still here waiting. It's the already and the not yet. And I can't help but think of a couple prayers from the Book of Common Prayer to help guide some of our our final thoughts here, specifically with regard to the waiting and how difficult it is, especially when we see all of these things combating the ideas that we hold so dear. The Book of Common Prayer says, Eternal God, in whose perfect kingdom no sword is drawn but the sword of righteousness, no strength known but the strength of love, so mightily spread abroad your spirit 
that all peoples may be gathered under the banner of the Prince of Peace as children of one Father to whom be dominion and glory now and forever. And we desperately wait this perfect kingdom. We desperately wait this place where no sword is drawn but the sword of righteousness. Yet we live in the midst of this world that's characterized by violence and injustice and difficulty. For some of us, that's more near and dear to our hearts over the events of the last couple of weeks. And for some of us, that's more near and dear to our hearts over the last couple of years of your life and the struggles that you've seen even within your home. The battle for placement as number one, the battle of the wills to get your way, the battle of whatever it is to supplant the ideas of other people. I can think about peace on a, on a national level and an, an international and global level as well, but you can also see this, this prayer being very emblematic for what we need in our homes as well. But it gets even more difficult as you continue on in the book of prayer. This is very nice and it's very like ethereal and it's philosophical and it doesn't really touch us where we are. Yes, we can pray for the fact that there's no sword drawn but the sword of righteousness, but here is where it gets tough. It says, O God, the Father of all, whose Son commanded us to love our enemies, lead them and us from prejudice to truth. Deliver them and us from hatred, cruelty, and revenge. And in your good time, this same idea that's all throughout Second Peter where God is sovereign over time and waiting for that perfect moment to bring to culmination everything that he has brought about through his son, and in your good time, enable us all to stand reconciled before you through Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen. Lead them and us from prejudice to truth. Deliver them and us from hatred, cruelty, and revenge. Yes, Tom Petty, the waiting is the hardest part. But I also think that actually acting within the waiting is difficult as well as we see these travesties all around us, as we experience the travesties on a more personal level in our homes, we are called to be a people in the midst of this waiting to act with passion, to act in a manner that exalts Christ, to live as people who have not forgotten that a thousand years is like a day to the Lord. A people that have not forgotten that he's still in control. He's still metaphorically hovering over the primordial chaos to say, I got this under control. To live as a people who are still sold out to this calling to follow him even when we don't see results and even when the people across the table are calling us to something different. My prayer for us tonight is that we do not become jaded, that we do not become scoffers, that in the midst of the waiting, we become people of hope, that we become people of peace, that we become people of joy and love and mercy and forgiveness, people who seek to reconcile with our enemies, people who seek to be the hands and feet of Jesus when where he is calling us is difficult. My prayer is that ultimately we trust that God is sovereign over all of this and that he is calling us to act responsibly on his behalf.